Don't talk to me unless it's about Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason, part two. Today we're talking about the second half of the book from page 177 to the end. Just like part one, I'm joined by Shauna and Darla. We are three women in our 30s and 40s. Shauna and I live in Portland, Oregon, and Darla lives in Amman, Jordan. At the end of the episode, we have some listener reviews of the book. Remember, you can submit your own audio messages to the podcast at donttalktomepod.com. All right, here we go. We kind of inadvertently stopped last time, like right before so much happened and exploded. (laughs) So I'm really happy we'd stopped then, processed, predicted. Um, And yeah, I have, I had shared with you the questions I had in mind, but I wanted to start with just kind of a more open-ended, like, do either of you have any burning reactions or things you want to get off your chest or point out or talk about about this second half? I think the burning thing for me about it, you is I think is one of your questions that you had, um, you said you were going to ask about like how we saw ourselves in this book. And I just kept writing down all kinds of things. So as soon as you said, um, how do you see yourself in her, um, in the book? I was like everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about you, Darla? Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I, I, when you asked that, you know, I said, I had said, um, that, uh, it was a prop, a, a legitimate answer of the whole book. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I really did, even in the really terrible parts of her, I really like, I did, I saw myself, um, and, you know, and it's, it's not like, um, the full realized version of myself, but it's like that inkling, mm-hmm. you know, that like you have a choice, you could go one way or another way. And, you know, like when you have a mental health issue, you, you sometimes don't have a choice, right. As to which way you go. Um, and I can mm-hmm. see that, you know, like I was talking to my husband about, the, about the book at one point and, um, I had, uh, I don't think, know if we talked about this last time, but I had pregnancy induced depression. So when I got pregnant a couple weeks in, maybe eight weeks in, um, I started to get really depressed and I had never really experienced depression before in my life. I'd never been medicated for it. I'd never been diagnosed with it. And, um, I went from me, which you guys both know me, like I'm very chipper. I'm very like an up person. You know, I'm always, I mean, I'm a life coach. Like I like live that life. Right. And I, um, I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't smile. I couldn't like, I couldn't be have experienced joy at all. And there was no, didn't feel like a choice. Like I, I took a leave from work and Ezra, my husband would get up in the morning and go to work. And like, I couldn't even look at him or smile at him. And it didn't feel like I was making a choice to do that. And I see that so often in this book that she like, you know, she talks about that. Like people think that this might be a choice or people think I'm trying to be this person. And it's like, and at the same time, you're cognizant that you're doing it, but you don't, can't, you can't choose something else. You know, and it wasn't until I started taking medication that I was like, I could suddenly choose to, to feel different things again. I could choose my emotions. Um, so I, I, I really like, I, there, it was, it was uncanny to see that how, how well Meg Mason was, was able to take somebody with a diagnosed mental health issue, which I'm guessing is schizophrenia is what she, did she say it in the end? No, she she didn't say it anywhere. I had 
guess schizophrenia or bipolar, but I don't, I don't know. By the way that they, yeah. Yeah. By the way that they talked about it, um, it sounded like it was a really like extreme diagnosis, you know, which would have been like schizophrenia. So, um, anyway, it's amazing. Like for an author to be able to write somebody who has a very extreme mental health diagnosis and for just, you know, people who don't to be able to be like, yeah, I see myself in that person. It's pretty, it's just such amazing talent. Your words are like spot on too there, uh, Darla, because I even wrote down the quote that she says, um, I said I hadn't known you could choose how to feel instead of being overpowered by an emotion from outside yourself, which is what you just said, like you can choose to, yeah, it's powerful, like very powerful to hear. Yeah, I feel like my kind of constant struggle in the book was feeling like, okay, I understand that Martha can't, I, I, yeah, feeling conflicted of like, what can she choose? What can she not, not knowing like what was in her control, what Mm -hmm. wasn't and feeling sympathetic for her, but feeling overall, I feel like just really frustrated and then feeling bad about myself. Like, Oh, I, how come I can't have empathy and real sympathy here? Um, that I just like, I think for me that the problem that I kept coming into was like, Okay, Darla, an example you just gave of your story, like it does, I don't know, if, if, that you didn't sound like you were being cruel on the outside to other people. And like, I feel like she kept kind of hurting people. And then it kept, I kept wondering, like, okay, what could be going differently here? Like, is it that she, well, clearly we learned she needed to become medication. Um, but like, was that, do I feel like she should have been the one to be like, this is really not okay. I need to get medication. Do I kind of, you know, I don't know if blames the word to use, but like place the responsibility on should her mother and Patrick and Ingrid and her father, like, should they have been like, this is not okay. You need to go to a doctor. Um, she also like saw some like kind of shitty doctors throughout her life who like didn't diagnose her properly or kind of were just like, oh, you should take iron or whatever they <laughs> had initially said. Um, Yeah. And so I wanted to hear from both of you how you feel like her story could have gone differently. And and really by differently, I think I mean better. Like, I feel like she unnecessarily suffered for too long. And I kept asking myself, like, what could be, how could this have gone better? I mean, I I definitely, I made note of like when she gets the proper diagnosis there, um, how like, like immediately she said she felt hot. and to me, have, having been now in somatic therapy for several years, um, it's like the body's response. Like it knew, she knew on some level this whole time, like she might not have known on like this whole conscious level, but it's like she knew. So I, I think that speaks a little bit to um, what you're saying about like, should she have been doing a better, being a better advocate for herself um, and seeking medication and continuing but I also think um having been someone who's had like depression and other things like it it is hard it's hard to um and scary to go and seek out um help and I think I also see a lot of myself in her and her storyline with her mother like my relationship with my mom has been tumultuous over the years um and I you know I found myself um 
which is probably why I was able to, in our last conversation, accurately um, guess that her mother had the same diagnosis. And I was left with a lot of questions around, it's not her story, but I'm like, are we going to talk about this? Are we going to talk about what her mom's been doing as she medicated? Um, has she just been using alcohol as a medication, but is she just not have a severe, severe of a case? Is that why, um, as you, as you just said, um, how much of Martha's experience is because she has a more severe case of it, or is it choice that she's making things worse for herself? And it, it's so, it's so hard to say, but, um, yeah, I think the, her relationship with her mom and the way they hid things, probably it didn't give her the skill set that she needed, I don't think, to be an advocate for herself until her world falls apart, until um, like her sister stops playing the role of a fixer. Um, identified her sister as a fixer pretty quickly in this book of stepping in and fixing her problems. And when she showed up that day and she said, I'm tired of this and left, like she's like, oh, no one's going to fix this for me. I have to pull myself out of this. And that's when she, she learned to. So I, I think um, some of it's choice. And yet I don't know that she had the tools she needed to figure out how to, how to do it on her own. Yeah. That, you know, her sister pulling away from her is like, was such a like seminal moment in the book because it's like, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if I observed her as much of a fixer, but as like a, um, like an anchor, you know, like, a yeah, look, I'm normal because this normal person, I remember when, um, my, my, uh, sister was in school and in, in university and she was, um, my sister has, she's open about the fact that she's had mental health issues in her past. And she was friends with a lot of people who also had mental health issues and they, and they lived together. There's a couple of them. And I remember when the first time I came to their house and I talked to my sister after that, she said that everybody, her and her roommates were so happy that I was there because I was like a normal person who could be in their home. And that made them feel more normal. That was like, we're not such great. We're not so crazy that normal Darla can't walk into our house. Right. Mm-hmm. And so with, with, um, Martha, um, uh, right, right. Her name's Martha. Yeah. I'm already like <laughs> mostly done another book. So now I'm like, is it Robin? <laughs> so now Martha with Ingrid around, Martha could be like, oh, look, it's my norm. Since they made a joke out of everything. Talk about medication, right? Mm-hmm. Self-medication can be humor. You know, we use that as a defense mechanism all the time as human beings. And so here Ingrid brought the humor, brought normalcy was like that anchor for her. And once Ingrid pulled that anchor away, she had no one around her to tell her, no, you're still normal. It's okay. Like Mm -hmm. you're crazy, but you're normal. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that's, it's, it, it speaks to what is often talked about as a, like, um, you know, getting to rock bottom. Right. If, if Ingrid continued to anchor her into normalcy, she maybe never would have hit that point where then she could come back up. Right. She might've yeah. just stayed at this level. But uh, yeah, I agree. And I, but I also think um, you watch each of the the three most pivotal. I mean, her dad's a pretty pivotal relationship, but um, you see the three most pivotal roles other besides him between Patrick, her sister, Ingrid and her mom, her mom plays a different role instead of being this um, stops playing the role of, I don't know anything or I'm not there for you. And actually, 
takes her call every day and like it's a completely different role and her sister's completely different role like I'm not going to jump in and anchor you and perhaps make you feel normal and Patrick walks out like no this is a choice that you're making because I know you're medicated so it's like when everyone stops playing the role that they've been playing her entire life she hits rock bottom and realizes oh like I'm on my own here unless I I can uh I mean I guess her mom was there to um help walk her through it. But I think that changing of roles really caused her to see herself in a different light instead of just this victim. Um, she'd been playing this victim for so long um, and realizing, yeah, this is a choice. He's right. Although he used, Patrick used some pretty um, harsh words to tell her that. But <laughs> And what an interesting, Shauna, you bring up such an interesting concept of like, you know, to, like what an interesting, um, uh, like uh, exercise you could do in your own life is like, what role oh, am I playing? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Like, what role am I playing? I bring that up. Yeah. Because of yeah. therapy and I've had to do that, distinguish the roles in my life, um, that I play the roles that everyone else around me plays to figure out, um, like why, why, why are things continuing and patterns are continuing to play out the way they keep playing out and nothing's changing. Cause oftentimes we all play this role in life. Like, healthy ones and non-healthy ones. Yeah. It's, it's a fun game to play. I recommend it. Yeah. Yeah. Where you get to like, go through and be like, okay, do I want to keep playing this role? role? You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Well, the, this is something I'd written down as to uh, something I could relate to in the book is I feel like Martha really equated being nice and kind of enabling and just kind of like the anchor thing, like the way Ingrid was just her anchor. She, she created that as being nice. And that means that you're on my side. And I feel like her whole family, that was kind of their story of like, if you're nice and just kind of like, don't rock the boat, like that's what it looks like to be on someone's side. And I feel like I'll often think that way. But then I, you know, if I step back, I'm like, oh, but there've been so many times when like, it's helped me that someone who loves me has not quote, like been nice to me, but like mm. has nudged me along in a positive direction. Um, and yeah, I feel like that was kind of their whole family's dynamic was just being, you know, and sometimes it was great. Like the way I feel like at first when she got sick, when she was a teenager, the way her dad was like just there for her. And he just would like sit in the room with her. And like, I loved that. And then I was like, Oh, this is what it really looks like to quote, be there for someone but then like it kept going and that was all anyone ever did. And it was kind of, you know, kind of make me think, oh, you know, there, I feel like there's a time for that. And there's a time for, it looks different to be on someone's side and it might look like giving them some tough love, like what her mom mm -hmm. did in the end. I loved that letter the mom wrote. Oh yes, very much so. Looking at Martha and Patrick, I kind of I have trouble identifying, okay, what brought them together? What kept them in love? And then what was the downfall? Like there was, you know, it's like, okay, was it just that Martha's illness was getting worse with time? Or what did either of you see in kind of what was the foundation of their love and the good side of their relationship the first time? And then what brought the downfall of it? Well, even Patrick even says that, you know, he fell in love with her that moment that she asked him about his mother. And so you can tell, and because of the person that Patrick is, you can tell that like kindness is a love language of his, right? That like he saw Martha asking that question to him about his mom is like kindness that other people weren't exhibiting, especially his father, right? He wasn't having that kind of relationship with his dad. The, the, 
you know, Martha's family that kind of adopted him in, Winsome and all of them. It's like, it was, he was included in Christmas, but it was like kind of begrudgingly at first, right? So here Mm -hmm. he had someone who like asked him a question about this person that he loved and revered so much, right? She died. So he, he didn't, he didn't get to have the tumultuous relationship with his mother, right? He just got to see her as this perfect individual that that was that wasn't around anymore. And so it sounds like he anchored into that. And, and how many of us go into relationships wanting the person to be this, like play the specific role because we saw it once, you know, like, I don't know about you guys, but I did a lot of people with potential, <laughs> you know, like where I was like, oh, I can see who they can be. <laughs> right. Um, and at that one point, uh, I, I, my best friend and I were both like, at one, one point we were both like, we are stopped using potential as a currency. It's done. <laughs> potential is done. <laughs> and, and so I think he saw that, right. He saw that she's, and she's so smart, like, you know, so, and he, and he is too. So he saw this intellectual, um, equal to him. And he saw this kindness. And then it's almost like heroin, right? You do like, they say you get addicted to heroin by trying to go after that first hit again and again, right? You never get that first hit feeling. Well, he got that kindness and he stayed to like find those little hits of kindness, right? Like that, like anchored him along until I think like any human being, you just are like, I can't do it anymore. I, I can't go after it. Right. That's when you went to re if, if it, we're comparing it to the heroin addict, he went into rehab at that point, he went in to get detox and he had to leave and not come back. Yeah. Sort of. He sort of comes back. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, mean, for a period yeah. of time, right. You know, like yeah, for a long period of time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He, had to, um, he had to go into detox. He had to do his couple months, right. Where he like went into a facility and she yeah. didn't visit. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, um, it's pretty clear, as you said from the beginning, I mean, even when he admits it, that he's always really cared for her. You know, I think we spoke a little to this um, last time we talked about the first half, but um, I struggled and I, and I even to the end struggled. Like I had asked the question, like, does he, does she really love him? Um, Cause you don't, you don't really see that build up. You see kind of an infatuation with him when she finds out that he maybe likes or is in love with her but you're but you don't see a lot of that but even all the way through the book until the end even at the end when she's like realizes she wants him back and that she loves him um the whole focus of the book is so much on everything that's wrong with her like even he even points out like one of the things like of course I love you and like and and all that um and he makes mention of the her going over and talking to the woman at the party or whatever, because she just felt so much for her. Like, he's like, you are a good person. I'm attracted. Like, I love you because of who you are, that, that side of you, that's not ill. Um, but you don't really, you only see these little, as far as I can remember, but as I told Kaylin, I probably need to read this again to see if I missed stuff. But you don't see a lot of her character build up outside of that, but you see her sister's love and affection for her. Like can't stay mad at her for very long. She's like, ah, oh, God, I love you so much. I can't be mad at you. Um, and so, you know, that she's got like this whole character, um, that I don't know if we get to see a whole lot of that makes her lovable. Like, you really don't see a lot of it, but you know, for me, it's like, he must love her, must be there. Um, and I'm just not sure about her love for him, but I don't know. I, I don't know, even towards the end, like, what if I'm not convinced that, um, that I'm just not sure, I'm not positive if she's, she ever really loved him. 
But I really do love the one of the end quotes about, um, uh, you know, I wrote it down somewhere about falling. Uh, people assume that when you're trying to work it out with somebody that, um, oh, it's great. You clearly never stopped loving each other. And she's like, oh, no, I did. I definitely fell out. Like, you can't say that. People won't understand. But um, it's too much to explain that you can start and stop again from nothing and that you can love the same person twice. So I know she loved him, but I just... Yeah, I don't I don't know how well it's it's written to show where it started. Well, you know that she said she loved him right from that. Quote, yeah, still you still don't see it. And I wonder yeah. I, I, I wonder, Shada, like if you think is she capable of love? Yeah, you wonder that. Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, you. it's like she talks so much about how much she loves her nephews as well. And and it's clear you could tell how much she loves her sister, even though it's still always about her. Like there's almost this narcissistic effect that everything's about her because of her mental illness. Um, you feel that, but I don't know if I, I never felt it towards Patrick, although it seems like there's love there, but it's just, I'm not sure. I'm just not sure. You're right. And another a really interesting question is how you are basing being able to see this love on your context of what love is, right? Just like mm-hmm. when I read the book, I'm looking for what my context of love is and Kate yeah. was looking for what her context of love is. So what's interesting is there, there are plenty of people I'm sure who read this book and are like, definitely see their context of love within those pages. I mean, I guess I did see it a bit, but the time they went cliff jumping, like you, that was the, for me, I noted that that was the time when I saw the deepest, like the deepest connection and love between the two of them. Like they really seem to reconnect on some and you kind of saw a little bit what they love about each other adventure and, and all of that. Um, but it was like just a snippet. It's helpful when your automatic reaction, which is the, you know, the human condition is to like judge. Right. So like when you see someone else's relationship that you're like, what is going on there? Right. And they're like, oh, right. Their context of love is probably different from my context of love. Yeah. Yeah. Noted. <laughs> like drop a quarter in the jar every time we do that. Right. <laughs> Go on vacation. <laughs> Yeah, well, we have all our context, but then also the whole book is through Martha's context. And I feel like Mm. even though it was obviously written in the first person the whole time, I feel like the part at the end where you find out it's this journal she's written like at this Mm. specific point in her life made me see it even differently of, okay, she really was kind of like cathartically, you know, getting all this out. And I feel like even it made me think, oh, maybe she really didn't put down her good stuff. Like sh- she didn't show her good sides that much in this recounting. Um, and I was listening to interviews with, with Meg Mason, where she talked about these, the kind of little vignettes throughout the book that really could have been placed anywhere of, you know, her nephew calling her and talking about like cheese or her like tying shoes or something for a girl in the locker room. Um, and those little pieces were, kind of the only ways we saw Martha in maybe the way that other people see her. Um, like, so showing some of that goodness. Um, but yeah, it made me think, oh, maybe we really aren't seeing a lot of the good sides of her. Cause it is kind of hard to see how she showed love to people um, like without just needing them. Yeah, no, that's, that's well put. Um, yeah, because the book's supposed to be 
we talked like is this an autobiography we don't know anything about Meg Mason we're like I don't know if it's like a fictional version but regardless of what it was I really like the end where you find out like this book is her journal of sorts like it you know it's like in her dad or or Patrick one of them makes comment about hoping to publish your story or your book one day um so I agree like your journal is going to be a reflection of probably one side of you you really help you know at least for me my journal tends to reflect the um the harder and <laughs> and uh not as shiny parts of my life so you, yeah that's a good point that you wouldn't which I've thought about I've thought about like yeah I don't think we're really meant to see that side so much of her because this is really a story of her her dealing with the mental health issues and how it plays out and affects all of the relationships in our lives also journals like are not only are they not the shiny side of you but they are inherently like narcissistic right they're like name right? I mean that's what we do that's that's it's like part of therapy right which and they so, talk about Ingrid and her talk about yeah. and make fun of her like oh we can do get a journal now and she jokingly gets one and there you go right right so like of course it's going to be from her context because that's what it's supposed to be you know it's yeah. supposed to be navel gazing yeah, yeah. But it's such, such fascinating that's why we like this kind of writing that's why because so it's like it does have that question of is it autobiographical because it is like a navel gazing book it's what mm-hmm. you know you get to see inside a human more than than you would maybe even if it was autobiographical right I mean mm-hmm. there's probably maybe pieces of it that are but to be able to um like uh, also make up pieces that can draw you in more you know because it's a character yeah well, yeah, I think as I was, you know, like my, okay, my first read through it, I kind of, every time she talked about, you know, some kind of terrible thing she did, I, I looked at the way she justified it, like she was justifying it. And then now I'm like, oh, was she actually just saying like, God, I can't believe I thought and did this horrible thing. And it's like, just recounting it honestly, but not justifying it and being like, it's okay that I hit Patrick with an iron or like whatever the things that she would say or do. Yeah. It made me see it differently. I listened to a bunch of interviews with Meg Mason. She hasn't shared anything that made me think this book is autobiographical, but I have no doubt that, you know, the parts of us enter books, I'm sure, you know, in all kinds of ways. Um, She, at least no one ever asked her directly or she never shared like, I have had a serious mental illness or, I mean, we know Mm. she has two kids, so she hasn't had the exact experience of Martha. Um, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't get the sense that it really is, but it's written like it is because it turns out it's Martha's journal. So it is, it's an autobiography of Martha, but Martha's just fictional. <laughs> like that's the way I've, I came to the end to conclude, like that's the way, why it kind of felt that way, I think is because it was intentional. Like you said, it was supposed to be that navel gazing autobiographical, autobiographical reflection of her, I think, but obviously, you know, we may never know, but can I reference a, a specific quote? I want to like yeah. talk about one. Yes, please. So, page 195. Um, she, it's Ingrid and Martha. And she says, you don't just leave your husband, Martha, not unless there's a proper, proper reason or you're our mother and you don't give an F about anyone except yourself. I've had to bleep for you, Caitlin, in case that was useful for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but what if you're unhappy? It doesn't matter if you're unhappy. It's not a good enough reason. If you're just bored and it's all a bit hard and you don't feel like you love them anymore, who cares? You made a deal. <laughs> Such an interesting conversation. Um, yeah. Does Martha have a response after that? 
Um, Ingrid got up, did something to the sling. I followed her to the door and waiting for me to open it. She said, I know this won't mean anything to you because you're not having them, but the best thing a mother can do for her children is love their father. It didn't sound like something my sister would have thought of. And I asked her who said it, me, no, but who told it to you? Winsome. And that's when she found out that mm. Winsome and Ingrid had been oh, that spending time over. together. And that's, I feel like that's a, I mean, I see a lot of truth to what Ingrid's saying. And like, you do make a deal with someone when you go into a committed partnership, whether it's marriage or you call it something else. Um, and there's, I think there's, you know, obviously situations where it has to end, but, but they didn't do anything to try. Like, I mean, their couples therapy attempt was pathetic. I was like, so disappointed in Patrick. I was like, okay, you are sound of mind enough to like pull it together and just find a different therapist. Obviously that woman wasn't very good at her job, but surely you could have found someone else. True. No, I guess that was great. That was a very comedic, like very funny. Can you imagine? I mean, I've never been in a therapist's office. I was like, can you imagine? It was so funny. (laughs) And it did. It brought them together in this, you know, kind of beautiful way of like, okay, it did help them, but it was like super temporary. Yeah. It's temporary. And I feel like um, they use that comment, the comedic relief there to like excuse themselves from seeking further therapy. (laughs) Yeah. And alcohol, right? They went and drank. So they used comedy and alcohol. Yeah. That may have been the same time they cliff jumped. I can't quite remember. Might've been though. Yeah. They did something wild. Yeah. I think that, um, I, I remember that quote by Ingrid and I wondered how much of what she was saying was true or if she was trying to speak more to like, Hey, I see you not trying that hard, Martha is as almost as if she, I was trying to figure out, is she calling her out, um, specifically, um, or how much she really believes like you can't ever leave your spouse because you know, yeah, you made a deal. Um, and then, or how much of, again, it's humor since their relationships all based on humor. Like, so I've, you could read that quote any one of those ways and, but it was still hilarious to read. And Yeah. And it was like, like, to me, it was very much like that. Very curious about the, um, I'm trying to think, figure out how to like articulate this clearly. So where she says like, unless there's a proper reason or you don't, you basically don't care about anyone else except yourself. Right. And I Mm -hmm. feel like we live, especially, you know, we all know each other from, from Portland and, and um, Portland, I think is like the epitome of this in America and America is the epitome of this in the world is this idea of self-care, right? Like now the trend is very hot on self-care, right? It it has been for decade or, or more and very much of like taking care of yourself. You know, like, I mean, I'm a life coach, right? Life coaching only got big because people were taking care of themselves and like looking at things of like, am I happy in my relationships? Am I happy in my life? What can I do to make change? Right. This idea of um, agency in every aspect of your life. And then one of the books that I'm reading right now is by what's her name? Christian Hanna. It's called the four winds. And it's about um, this family during uh, the, in the dust bowl during the, after the depression. And I think about like, like the comparison of like in that where you're like, you don't leave a relationship just because the other person makes you unhappy. Right. Like that would be so unheard of. Like, can you imagine, it actually would be a really interesting, someone who has a really good novel writing brain to write a novel on which like those kind of conversations happen. Like we took some modern day ways of thinking and like brought it back, you know, like you imagine two women in the great depression 
who are living in tents now because they've, you know, can't afford to have their farms anymore. And they're like, yeah, I don't know. Bob just doesn't really make me happy anymore. You know? And like, we'd be like, that's crazy. They would never do that. But now you would absolutely have that conversation. Be like, I don't know. I, yeah, he's a great guy, but just doesn't make me happy anymore. Right. And like, how interesting that, you know, like, so what I thought about that when I read this conversation, because Ingrid was so like, no, you don't do that. Right. Basically she says, unless you're a narcissist, like our mother, you don't do that. And Martha's Martha doesn't really have another way to respond. I mean, doesn't really have a chance to respond because they start talking about winsome, but you know, Martha's take on it. She's like, no, that's like, of course you would leave if you were unhappy in a relationship. So it's kind of like both of those competing ideas. And you're like, it's not, you don't walk away with one clear answer. Right. Yeah. You're like that person's wrong. Well, it makes me think about, okay, you know, if you're thinking about leaving a relationship, it's presumably because you're not kind of getting what you want out of it. And we find out later, like Martha has such a hard time identifying what she wants. You know, she goes through like that period where she's reading books and writing down anything people want because she can't even imagine having clear wants and desires. And I wouldn't have thought about that as, yeah, I hadn't connected that to her issues with Patrick that like she because she didn't know what she wanted in life in any part of life, she wasn't able to get, to get what she wanted or get, you know, fulfillment out of things, including her marriage. Yeah. So like the root of it is not her mental health, but the root of it is really like knowing herself enough to know what she wants. Yeah. I mean, but she did make it pretty clear there that, um, and I saw the progression throughout the second half of the book where you really start to see the little, uh, Easter eggs about her desire to have a baby. Like they start talking a whole lot about it. Um, until she finally admits like the one thing I've always wanted, I can't, she didn't think she could have. Um, and so it's like, it seems like she was so super focused and you, you, you weren't aware of it for so long. That's what she really wanted. And it was almost like nothing else mattered. Um, jobs or or any of that she couldn't figure it out because she was so focused on something that she knew she could never have or or so she thought I think she later comes to realize when Dr. Robert I think it was um, indicates that oh you can absolutely have kids she's like what Um, and I think that may even be I wondered if that was when like it really got bad with Patrick um, because she's like now almost angry with the whole situation that I can have this thing that I've always wanted. Um, but it just overshadowed her ability to make any decision otherwise, about what she wants in life. Mm-hmm. What were both of your reactions when we find this out that she really has wanted kids all along? Did either of you see that coming or yeah. What were your reactions? Yeah. I kind of felt like she had been told these things and I can kind of like relate to it because I had been told um, like my, so through most of my twenties and thirties, my body didn't make really make, really make progesterone. So like, I basically was told that I never, I never really wanted kids to begin with is what I thought. And I thought, and then I was told by doctors that I couldn't really have them, um, or that I would have a really hard time and have to get progesterone supplements. And, you know, I'd miscarry like all these stories that I was like, yeah, it's okay. I'm not like one of those people who was like, I have to be a mother. Right. So so I really, I, I felt for her. Like, I was like, yeah, I had been told that. And then I, I accidentally got pregnant with my daughter and, and had a baby. And so like, which 
if I can't do it very easily, an accidental pregnancy would probably be really hard, right? <laughs> so I really could feel for her where I'm like, yeah, you're just kind of told by these people that you, and I don't think they're, I think they're well-intended, you know, I don't think they were purposely trying to steer me wrong, but, um, you know, that you're like, you trust them. They're in the medical profession. You're like, yeah, I trust, I trust that you know what you're talking about and you're telling me the right, the, the right information. And then, and then you get to this point that you're like, and now that I have Izzy, I'm like, absolutely wanted to have Izzy, you know, like, mm-hmm. but I didn't know that. I, cause I didn't always told I, I couldn't. And I just formed this idea around it. Right. Some of it's very protective too. I mean, what if she was like, I want kids and everybody around her said you would make a terrible mother. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be, that would be a terrifying way to go through life. Right. Or, or like, what if they insisted and that she tried to have a child and turns out she really couldn't, you know, like that pressure could go either way and just, it could be, it could be too much. Um, and she clearly also, not only did they tell her she couldn't have kids, but she believed something was wrong with her as we find out, like something, she has a diagnosis, but, and she, I'm sure she feels like I would be a bad mother, not even having heard that from anyone. She just can tell she can't control it. She can't control any of those, um, reactions the emotions the scary i the all the scary things she's doing and throwing so yeah and i had a similar story of being told that it would be hard for me to have kids with pcos and a few other issues and both my kids were accidents as well um happy accidents but so yeah you're right um but i did i did see it coming caitlin as um i even wrote down on chapter one of the chapters in the very beginning of the second half where she says something about making a face. She's hoping that Ingrid doesn't see after Ingrid describes her stage of life as filling a shopping cart with just absorbent products. Um, and I wrote down, I can't quite remember writing it, but I wrote, is Martha jealous? Is she wanting a baby? Is that how, you know, um, and you see it as she, Ingrid continues to describe you know, five under effing five and, or whatever number it was, um, like they're talking about it. It just started to build up. Like you're always talking about kids and you kind of see Martha feeling a little like pull away at those times. And you're like, I think, yeah, I definitely saw it coming that she wanted a child or at the very least, um, might be one of those people that doesn't want children, but is really tired of people rubbing their children in your face. I'm not sure. So yeah, I saw it coming, but um, but I really do also um, appreciate that at the end, um, like the final sentences is she's forty one and still has no children, and you know, um, because I think she's looking to find. It seemed like she was looking to find other ways to find happiness and other things she wants. Since we were just talking about figuring out what she wants in life, she's starting to realize she can want more than one thing. And so I thought that was a lovely way to wrap that up, that she didn't get what she wanted. And yet the story's not over either. Looking back now, it, it makes me, it's kind of frustrated of, you know, oh, she, she never like got a second opinion or, you know, she had all these openings, like where Ingrid brought up, you know, Hey, I I think you and Patrick would be really good parents. And she was like, no, don't talk about it. And it's, it's, it's sad and frustrating that she kind of just you know, took this burden on herself and just felt like she couldn't 
share it with anyone um, that I am worried I can't have kids medically that, you know, the medicine I'm taking is bad or that I would just be a bad mother uh, in general. Um, and I, I mean, I feel like you see so much of the things she sees in her own mother that she fears are who she is. And so she'll be a bad mom. Um, you know, at, at the one point when they're fighting, like Patrick says something like, I also don't think you should be a mom or kind of something like that. And I mean, I think in some ways I feel like she did need to get to the place she is at the end of the book to consider something like parenting. I just, I feel like she didn't wish she wasn't taking care of herself. And I don't think she, I think now she'd be totally capable of it. But, and I feel like even without a mental illness, even if she didn't have this mental illness, if she just was so poorly taken care of as an individual i feel like that's not a good place to start caring for others from uh yeah and it's just a shame that she couldn't kind of like walk through that uh grief she felt for not having kids with the people in her life who could have been there for her yeah, I remember a specific conversation that someone had with me, my my ex-stepmother. She said she was like just pushing and pushing the kids thing, pushing and pushing and like, oh my gosh, I, I'm so I like I see you with this curly headed daughter and blah, blah blah. And I finally had to like because I didn't want to tell people. It makes people feel really bad, and it's just like you know, like I think they talk about this in this book, right? Of like the difference between saying I don't want kids and I don't, I can't have kids. You mm-hmm. feel like. The I can't have kids ends the conversation, but you get the like, oh, sympathy. And then like, nobody, like some, they don't know how to continue the conversation after that point. So I just like said, I didn't want them. And my stepmother just like pushed and pushed and pushed. So finally I like, I like snapped on her and I was like, let it go. I can't have them. Okay. So when you do this, like all that, all it does is make me feel like guilt and shame about my body, not being able to do it. And she stopped doing it. And it's interesting now because I have a curly headed daughter. Right. But, um, but like, I can see how like Martha couldn't reach out to the people around her. It was too much. You carry too much shame, especially as women, right? That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to, you know, keep the population going. We're supposed to breed. We're supposed to want children. We're supposed to have maternal instincts. And when you don't have those things, even like I was, I I am, and was always such like a really um, adamant feminists. And like, I didn't believe that. I didn't believe that women had to have children to prove their worth, but it still is embedded in me. Right. I mean, I still get those messages that that's where my worth lies. So that was really like, I needed to shut those conversations down as fast as possible. And you know how much easier it was to be like, I don't want kids. And then people saw you as a narcissist and they just stopped the conversation. Right. (laughs) Like it was over at that point. So it's just, it's kind of easier that way. You know, I really, I, again, like another situation, which I just like, I felt like I could totally empathize with her. Oh, definitely. Um, And I, and I think um, for me, her relationship with her mother came up a lot when I thought about like, it's not just her mental illness and and all of that. um, But what I think the new I don't know how new it is, but I hear a lot of like the mother wound, um, you know, mothers pass down to their daughters, tend to pass down to their daughters, like this, this mother wound. Um, and I think from the beginning, you could see, like, I think she meant, I, I, the first half of the book feels so far away now, but I feel like she even talks a lot about like how, you know, being a mother, like you're not having an example of what a good mother is, um, can be terrifying. And it's like, I don't want children. Cause you start to wonder like, 
what what wounds am I going to pass down? Am I going to pass down that same? So I saw a lot of that too. I saw, um, and yet you see Ingrid be a successful mother and she sees that she can do it. And yet uh, Martha feels like, I think it's it's just so nuanced, right? It's all of it. It's the relationship she has with her mother and the way her mother has raised them and treated them and, and that um, emotional detachment, um, the illness that I think all of it together. Um, and then having Patrick, as we talked about, being so kind and so understanding and not really bringing up the whole subject, the entire marriage, because he was fine from the very beginning when they first, um, she first, they first admitted they liked each other in his apartment. Like, that's fine. Cause I want you more than I want kids. Like, it never really opened the door for her to really have to like dig deeper and think about it. It's just like also, a perfect if you, combination. Yeah, if, you, if you go back even earlier to the John, to Jonathan, right. Where it was mm-hmm. like, are you, the, Oh, you're the perfect woman. And I can't tell you how many times I heard that on dates, right. Where it was like, <laughs> where we got to the point in dating where they talk, talked about like, you know, future or whatever. And, and I was like, Oh, I don't want kids. And they're like, Oh my God, the perfect woman. And so like, the, you know, when that's reinforced yes. on one side, you're being reinforced this idea that you don't want kids. Right. And that that's, you know, um, commendable. And on the other side, you're being enforced that you're supposed to want them. Yeah. It's just, you get so many mixed messages from the world society. Yeah. Well, uh, Shauna, you brought up the, the closing lines, which I really wanted to get your thoughts on both of you, because yeah, I feel like I had one way I was feeling about the book's ending until literally the last sentence. And then it was just left this like huge question mark for me. Um, so I'm going to read just the last little tiny paragraph. I don't have a baby. There is no Flora Friel. I'm 41. Maybe there never will be, but I have hope. And either way, Patrick is always just there. And this was the part that really got me was Patrick is always just there. And it's one of the things where I want to hear how Meg Mason would read this because I feel like it could be Patrick is always just there. Like I take him for (laughs) granted and he's just there. And I haven't really learned how to actually love and appreciate people. (laughs) Or maybe it could be like, Patrick is always just there. Like he's supportive and he's always there for me. And yeah, I feel like the way I I think about the book's kind of summary, like hinges on which way this sentence is pronounced. (laughs) how do you interpret that last paragraph (laughs) and line (laughs) i imagine she would also read it if the british accent as well so like right so it would have just sounded way better (laughs) so you have to wonder (laughs) yeah so i think um the answer is both and many more other ways of pronouncing it right i think that there's sometimes where Patrick is just there. Right. <laughs> and there's sometimes where it's like, yeah, Patrick is just always there and there's going to be everything in between. And I think that's like, you know, that's what, that's really what a relationship is. Right. I mean, there's sometimes where Darla is just always there. There's sometimes where Darla's always there, you know, and like <laughs> the same thing applies to all of us. So I don't know, you know, because like if you read it in one yeah. context all the time, then it's you take away all the like multitudes Nuance. that we contain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I was thinking the same thing at first. I I, I had the same reaction of like, what does she mean by that? But then I thought, 
Well, they've already seen that their relationship has been this kind of up and down of being there for each other or not. And, um, and I figured, yeah, sometimes, you know, he's just there. I, I read it like, because she has hope. I think I, I think the word right before it, I have hope, um, Mm-hmm. tells me that she has hope that Patrick will always be there um, and hope for a kid and like the hope for the future. For the first time, she just has hope. Um, and yeah, I think it is multifaceted. I think that um, that it it doesn't even matter um, if she has a child or or what have you. She's got someone that's there to support her. And it seems like they're forming a healthier relationship this second time around. Um, so yeah, I have hope for them as well. These fictional characters. <laughs> it kind of, the, the last thing that I had highlighted in the book was not at the very end there, but when her mother, I think it was in her mother's letter. I can't remember it, but she said, all I've been trying to do all these years is take rubbish and turn it into something beautiful and much stronger than it was before. I'm sorry if that's a bloody metaphor for everything. Yeah. And so if you take that, right, like that very poignant statement and t- and apply it to the end, right? Like Meg, I mean, um, Martha's trying to say the same thing, right? Is like, I've, I'm taking this rubbish, right? That has been our relationship at times in the past and many times in the past and trying to have it be something beautiful. Right. So there's times where I'm going to say, and Patrick is always there in a way of like, this is, this is rubbish, rubbish. Right. And there's going to be times where I'm going to say, Patrick is always there because it's beautiful and stronger. Mm -hmm. You know, that like you take all that rubbish from the past and make it stronger. Very good tying together there. Well, (laughs) how sweet. (laughs) I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. I, I was liking the, direction I saw them moving of yeah trying to restart um and during injury and it was, time <laughs> yeah yeah and it was kind of I mean it had yeah even just the the way that Martha talks about oh you know I stopped loving him and I started again I feel like that almost maybe is potentially more helpful for them to look at it that way as opposed to like trying to solve and fix all their past issues but just truly restarting um and coming into it kind of fresh um and i liked seeing yeah the time they were spending together and also that patrick was setting boundaries and you know he was still going home to his apartment and you could tell he was trying to be more just kind of less blanket docile and more structured about yeah how they treated each other so i was feeling hopeful for both of their growth yeah I made note um in I think I guess it was the last chapter somewhere in the beginning of that last chapter where she just says this sentence just a single paragraph sentence I believe that says this is how it ends but then like Mm. that was right after um I don't know if we even knew that they were trying to reconcile at that point. I'm trying to remember. Um, And since I have it on my Kindle, I can't flip the pages very easily. (laughs) Um, And I thought, interesting, this is how it ends. But then she goes on to actually describe that hasn't ended. Like she actually then goes on Mm -hmm. to describe that they um, have ruined each other's lives and shouldn't get a second go at it. But like here, then you see them. Yeah. Um, 
sort of back together. And I thought that was interesting that like what I was, I, I was left wondering what she meant by that. This is how it ends. Yeah, that's I'm looking back at that chapter and Patrick is talking about, you know, how things end is your favorite part, Martha. I think yeah. I kind of took this is how it ends to be like this is how it ends semicolon. I'm going to tell you kind of the end of the story. And I guess now that we know it was in a journal, it's kind of like this is how this phase of my life that fits in this journal is ending and the rest of my life will be in a different journal maybe <laughs> yeah it was yeah it was at yeah. the beginning she yeah this is how it ends it's very um I, I i kind of read it like that and then i was like not sure i was still left wondering um because as we just said we don't really see the ending like we don't really see how it ends because it's still ongoing so it feels like a um, an interesting statement to me. Yeah, and maybe she means kind of this is how the the sad or the bad part of my story ends. Like this is how the mm. hard part ends, and now we're going into the rest of life. That is, it's not perfect, but kind of the worst of it is over. Yeah. Well, I think yeah, it was. Yeah, I feel like Meg Mason must have chosen the line pretty um intentionally uh because it kind of makes you think well she's going to tell you how like yeah this is how it ends we broke up all that whatever and but then you see it diff- go a little bit differently it's like it was kind of a setup I feel like it was a setup sentence in a way to like really um I think it was intentional in some ways so I again I think I need to read the book again and really put it all back together it, it'd be so interesting to be Meg Mason to be like yeah, no, I just kind of threw that sentence in there. Yeah. Which you do have. Big conversation about one sentence. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've definitely <laughs> listened to podcasts where authors are like, people read way too much into that. I <laughs> there's also, I know we're, we're a little bit over, but there's also this one other line that I um, highlighted that was earlier. It was right after they had seen that therapist and they went, they, you know, went to the bar and then they went home and they had sex and he said, and uh, Patrick says, Martha, um, everything is broken and messed up and completely fine. That is what life oh, is. Yeah. It's only the ratios that change usually on their own. As soon as you think that's it, it's going to be like this forever. They change again. And so I think if you apply that to both that sentence, this is the way it ends, right? It's going to completely change. And you apply it to the end of the book. Patrick's just always there. It's like, you know, these are the, the, the ratios will continue to change. There is no, this is how this phase of my life ends and it begins. Mm. There's going to still be some, there's going to still be mess afterwards. Yeah. yeah I, love I wrote that, that one down as well. Mm-hmm. That was one of my favorites, I think. Um, Cause it speaks to the messiness of life. So I did want to finish with the question of where you see yourself in the book. And I know it's in so many places, but I don't, did either of you have any certain examples or quotes that really stood out to you of places you saw yourself? I had more like, yeah, I mean, I think I answered that before by saying like, I saw myself all throughout it. Right. So it would take too long for me to go through every quote that I saw myself in. But one of the things that kept on sticking out to me was quotes in which I wanted to see myself. Like one of my, um, (laughs) one of my uh, goals is to uh, bring more laughter into my life. And I almost set that goal like every year. And it's like, I kind of like keep on upping the ante. Right. And I think there's times where I really have to try to remind myself that of that getting my daughter out of school uh, for school in the morning is one of those times where it's like, 
she's an absolute terror in the morning getting out the door. And I'm like, have to try to keep infusing the, the humor, right? And I look at like her relationship with Ingrid and I'm like, oh my God, it's so full of humor. You know, there's so much deep, dark stuff going on in their lives and they're just always making each other laugh. And this was, I mean, this was a text from Ingrid to Hamish. So it wasn't to Martha, but I just like, these are the things that I want to see myself more in, which is, <laughs> this was her text, get drain on blocker stuff on the way home because the bath is an emptying. Sorry for sexting you while you're at work. Eggplant emoji, lipstick and mouth. <laughs> and I'm like, I have got to start texting Ezra more like that. <laughs> get Drano. <laughs> I have to agree. I think um, I was jealous of humor. I was definitely jealous of the relationship and humor. Um, yeah. And I've always been told my humor is kind of sarcastic and dry. And I'm like, how do I fix that? Or maybe that's who I am. But I... <laughs> You yeah. just need to yeah, be British. I, it's how you fix it. That's yeah, true. <laughs> it's true. With a British accent. Um, very charming. The humor is very charming. Um, I I have to say, I saw myself at, like everywhere, um, especially the second half, as you really, things unfold. Like when the doctor like tells her that um, she's just managing it so well, I even wrote down like how many of us have heard that? Like you've been managing it so well for so many years, like in, in context to whatever it is, stress or, or whatever, like how many times we've been told that and you're like, I don't feel like I've been managing anything. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and a lot of it with the kids stuff, I know um, as a mom and perhaps you two can relate um, with, as, with having kids as well, but um, like, the quote I got, like wrote down, I think I had just shouted at my children that evening, but um, they're sitting in the mall or something. I can't quite remember where they are. And they, they see someone yelling at kids, teacher or something. I forget. Um, and Ingrid says, before you had kids, you got to think you were a good person. So then you secretly resent them, them being children for making you realize you're a monster. Um in the context of shouting at children. And I remember being like, Oh, how true, like how true, how many times as moms and parents do we, you know, shout at our kids or do something. You're not the best version of yourself. And you just, you do, you feel like a monster, even though they're sitting there like aghast at this. Oh, when they went swimming, um, this, this, some, yells at the other. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. Um, it's coming back to me now. And I don't know if it was Ingrid or Martha who said, like, can you imagine yelling at them? I think it was Martha. And that's when Ingrid said that. So I, I was like, who? Um, and a lot of like how Ingrid describes the best part about kids is all of it. The same, the same stuff that like she laments about having three under effing five, you know, like the best parts are the worst parts. So I think um, even though this is a story about Martha more so, I, um, I saw a lot of myself in the whole story. Um, a lot of that, things that I don't know that Martha understands and she doesn't have kids or maybe she does. Um, yeah. And I know I already talked a little bit about like seeing myself a lot in the relationship she has with her mom um, and the relationship I have with my mom. And it's still, I'm still a little bit shocked, but um, that she's so mad at her mom. I, I do. I don't know. I brought this up earlier, but I wondered if if her mom goes on to say that her she has family members who have the same disorder the, um, that Martha has um, mental illness, and she alludes to 
family members on her father's side um, that you would, it begs the question, doesn't her, wouldn't her dad know um, what, what diagnosis Martha has? Um, and does her dad know about her mom's diagnosis? So why is she so mad at her mom and not at her dad? Like, why is there no anger there? Um, and I see that myself in that, like my, my childhood and the stuff I, I I'm fleshing out in, in therapy and wondering why is there so much anger towards my mom when, you know, my dad had just as an active part a lot in my raising, um, and doing some messed up stuff. Um, I could go on Caitlin. I have so many, <laughs> but those are the ones that really, um, stuck out. I think the most, if I can recall. Yeah, that's, I hadn't actually thought about that with her dad, but you make an excellent point of, yeah, she didn't direct any anger to him and he was a part of it yeah and it I think I for me it's it's I assume it had a lot to do with the fact that her dad was there for her all that time they spent in her room um and yet she quote I I wrote down as well like all I wanted was to hate my mother and punish her like she wanted to punish her mother and she says it's simply because she knew this about me and she didn't tell me and she she hid it she didn't just not tell um but you're like, oh, but one would assume your dad also was aware of this. Um, so, yeah, I I've, I've thought a lot about that and, and why we as humans tend to direct some of our emotions and anger at certain individuals and not others. Yeah, it's very interesting. And I don't know how, how true this is, but I feel like that's probably uh, something that happens a lot to mothers, right? That mm-hmm. like mothers get blamed more than fathers especially yeah. if they're the primary caregiver you know yeah yeah it, it's part of the whole uh mother wound ideology um that um there's that kind of connection with your moms yeah that uh yeah I agree there's it's interesting yeah yeah I can't yeah, wait I think, to see how Izzy yeah. says I screwed up her childhood but Ezra was totally perfect yeah. right gonna be great <laughs> I, <it's, laughs> We, I was just doing an exercise with um, my eldest um, this evening, uh, doing a workbook on anger, actually, because 10-year-old having some anger issues. Um, and uh, one of the activities was to um, write down some things that you've been angry about recently, um, anything. Think about school and your family and people and things. And really big letters was mom. Smaller letters was Eloise. And then really really small letters sometimes dad <laughs> like <laughs> wait why is mom in big letters? hold on <laughs> and sometimes dad you're like all right okay fortunately it made me laugh more than anything but I'm also like well I might need to talk about that one in therapy <laughs> I'm convinced that the parent-child relationship all it does is keeps therapists in in business it, parents do to children and children need to have therapists and children do to parents and parents need to have therapists. You're welcome therapy for us. Keep on programming. Yeah. You're, you're right about that. I had, um, Shauna, the other thing you brought up about how the example of kids, you know, kind of make you see yourself as a monster and like you feel so ashamed about yourself and then you take it out as anger at them. I had written down that I related to a part in the book I think this might have been Martha. I think it was definitely in an adult, adult to adult context. Um, I think it was Martha talking about why she would be kind of angry and mad at Patrick, and she was relating it to the shame she would feel about herself, and just she felt so much shame that it turned into anger, 
And I could so relate to that. And I, I don't know if I've, yeah, put it in those words. Um, and I feel like that whole connection of how does shame turn to anger is like, that could be a whole book. That could be a whole thing. Life, <laughs> you know, that could be another hundred sessions of life coaching with Darla. <laughs> or more therapy. I know. Take I an like, exercise. Um, <laughs> my my yeah. therapist actually often says that um, we think of emotions as separate entities, but they, they're often it commingled like you can't um oftentimes have just one you can't just have anger like anger comes with disappointment and shame and like there there's an intermixing you know yeah i remember actually being in my therapist's office in portland um and with Anne marie and um she said i was talking about like some resentments i had towards the way that our life was set up at that time. And it was, um, I think it was just pre pandemic. And it was like, my, you know, Ezra has a full-time job and he also travels 50% of the time. And I was trying to grow a business and, but I was also primary caregiver. And when he traveled 50% of the time, it definitely was primary caregiver. And there is all this like so it was all this resentment towards Ezra about the way that our life was set up and that he wasn't like contributing the way that I wanted him to in the household. And after like met, you know, me talking for a while, Anne Marie just said, I'm sure she said it in the context of many other things, but she basically said, it sounds like you are having a problem with your own life. And I was like, mm. damn you. <laughs> you know, like there were so many issues with the way that I had created my life and what I wasn't doing, the way that I wasn't fulfilling dreams of my own. And I was taking that out on Ezra because it was just the mm-hmm. easier thing to do to say, you're screwed this up for me. Yeah. When you didn't, that was me. So I think about that often when I start to have resentment, especially if I have resentment towards Ezra. And I'm like, am I resenting something in my own life? And very often that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, just thinking about this book that it's like the more the more therapy I do the more I notice in the books I love kind of how those characters it's like they're never doing what the therapists say you should do you know they're never like communicating (laughs) just lovingly and actively and showing their love languages and you know not shutting down these things and I'm like okay our our bad you know our quote shadow selves like our bad sides they exist because this is how we make good stories. <laughs> like, and they say that interesting. If we at the end of the book, wait, where was it that? Um, oh, do they? What people are ashamed of usually make a good makes a good story. And I don't know if that was Patrick or her dad, but I think one of them said it to her. What people are ashamed of usually yeah. makes a good story. I remember. Yeah. I think that was when they went to the bookstore with her dad to see his book or something. If I recall, yeah. I thought it was closer to the end where, hold on, I can find it. Um, hard because she doesn't use quotation marks. So it's hard to just skim <laughs> the page and find where this was. Yeah, here it is. Page 310. Okay. Oh, it was, um, I ordered toast. It took a long time to come and I reached the bottom of my Instagram feed while I was still waiting for it. The final post was a picture mm-hmm. of F. Scott Fitzgerald. From author quotes daily. The caption said, What people are ashamed of usually makes a good story. Now we've got two listener reviews of the book. 
Thank you to Nihal and Sue for sharing your thoughts with us. Hi, I'm Nihal Kayali, um, and I just recently finished Sorrow and Bliss, uh, which was a fantastic novel and was actually recommended to me by Caitlin, who texted me a few months back and said something like, I just read a book. It's like Sally Rooney, except with the most amazing humor. In fact, it may even be better than Sally Rooney. And to that, I said, well, that's a very bold claim, um, especially because I personally think that Sally Rooney's most recent book, Beautiful World, Where Are You, was laugh out loud funny. Um, and so for a book to uh, not only meet but exceed the the high standards set by Sally Rooney, I was a little bit skeptical, I'll be honest. Um, but I did read the book uh, over a kind of extended period of time as I was reading two other books or so at the same time. And... Um, I thought it was phenomenally good. So point taken, Caitlin, you were right. And so, you know, I read it on Kindle. I couldn't buy it in the flesh because uh, I'm currently living outside of the U.S. But so, you know, I decided to look at my highlights, see what I had um, decided was of note. And there are four highlights. <laughs> And two of them are just things that I thought were absolutely hilarious and very personally relatable. Um, but those, I mean, they weren't highlighted as moments of great meaning. Um, one of them, you know, she moves to this new town and she's trying to make some friends. And so she joins a book club and she is surrounded by other women who have PhDs. And so she decides to pretend to have a PhD as well in the uh, small talk with the group. Um, and she picks a very obscure event that she listened to in an In Our Time podcast, uh, which is a podcast I too sometimes listen to, which is populated by what sound like stodgy British intellectuals. Um, and in the scene, she uh, pretends to have written her dissertation on the Lancashire Cotton Panic of 1861, um, based on one of these episodes. And then um, she decides that she cannot return back to this book club for a future meeting because, uh, unfortunately, they took interest in her dissertation topic and she couldn't remember anything from the podcast. And she didn't want to listen to it again because of uh, the fact that one of the podcast hosts was a compulsive compulsive throat clearer and kept interrupting the only female uh, speaker in the group. Um, I have literally had a similar experience where I was listening to an In Our Time episode where uh, I could just hear somebody breathing, one of the uh, members of the podcast, and it was driving me insane. So, you know, I highlighted that because it was extremely deeply funny to me. Um, but you know, now that I'm looking at the note, it's actually, it's, it's quite wonderful because it captures the way that, you know, Martha, this main character, she wasn't really making an effort to make friends. She, uh, like in a normal situation, if you were to try to befriend people, you just would not lie about this extremely large part of your life. I mean, as a 
PhD student myself. Um, I'm trying to imagine just like <laughs> marching into a group of people and introducing myself as working on something that I just do not know anything about at all, aside from listening to one podcast. It's a it's a deeply, deeply asocial thing to do, actually. Um, and I think it's really uh, representative of the ways that she would kind of fool herself into thinking she was making an effort um, to try to make herself happier, to create a social circle, to um, cope with the condition that she has and kind of uh, make the best of her circumstances. Uh, you know, in that passage, it's quite clear that she's not not really, truly making that effort. Um so that's one of the the four notes I have, um, which I at first deemed an inconsequential but deeply hilarious quote. Um, and now, as I said, perhaps not as inconsequential as I was thinking. But now I want to kind of shift to the one other highlight that I think is actually quite... Um, it was one of the quotes that really stood out to me and kind of distilled the experience of Martha in a way that was finally legible to me, uh, in a way that it hadn't been. Um, and I mean, I think one of the things about this book is that in a way that other books that I've encountered cannot or have not done, it really renders mental illness, um, depression and its kind of, uh, corollaries, um, in a way that I could understand it, I think, or I don't want to say understand it, but get a little closer to, um, kind of being able to feel in some small way what, you know, people feel all the time in their lives. Um, depression is incredibly common and, um, many people close to me have it. And, and in particular, um, last year I was talking a lot with somebody who would mention that he had depression. Um, though I couldn't feel it in our interactions, it would only come out when he would state it. Um, and I knew it wasn't my job to try to understand it, comprehend it, or manage it, of course. But I just wanted to understand it in some way um, without prying. And I remember at the time kind of Googling things like how to support someone with depression. And the tips were always quite intuitive and fairly straightforward. And so... Um, and I only realized after reading this book that I wasn't actually interested, <laughs> um, so much in like tips on how to support someone, but also, but more so to, uh, just know what was going on, um, in someone's head where I was having trouble, uh, getting in there. <laughs> Maybe I wasn't welcome in there. Um, but I wanted to know what these kind of big feelings were. And especially because my interactions with this person were always really pleasant and funny, um, usually quite light, even though they were sometimes 
kind of laced with a kind of inward or self-critical gaze. Like it was always jokey. And so I couldn't reconcile these things. And I think what this book does is it quite perfectly reconciles um, the light and the deep kind of cavernous dark um, that people can experience simultaneously. And sometimes even, I think, um, are like mutually constitutive probably. Um, anyway, so to get to the passage, um, it's when Martha is talking to the kind of new competent doctor who takes her account of her um, symptoms seriously. Um, and at one point she calls, she, well, she describes her symptoms and how she feels when she's having an episode and the doctor says oh so it's like brain weather and a little bit after that line which I thought was quite brilliant um Martha describes her symptoms and this is what she says it's like going into the cinema when it's light and when you come out you're shocked because you didn't expect it to be dark but it is it's like being on a bus and strangers on either side of you suddenly start screaming at each other, fighting over your head, and you can't get out. You are standing still, and then you're falling down a flight of stairs, but you don't know who pushed you. There is no one behind you. It's like when you go down into the tube, and the sky is blue, and when you come out, it's pouring with rain. So, you know, these quotes, or these descriptions, I thought were brilliant, because... We have all experienced all of these, except perhaps being falling down a flight of stairs. Um, but specifically the first one, going into a cinema when it's light and when you come out, you're shocked because it's dark. I actually refuse to go to the movies at around three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock, because I find that experience of going into the movies when it's light out and coming out when it's dark profoundly depressing. I, I cannot deal with that. The fact that I have sacrificed daylight to the movie and kind of missed those final hours. I find it really disorienting. And um, I actually remember in like middle school or high school deciding that I just wouldn't do it anymore. Um, and so to have that experience described in relation to how someone's mood can change, it was really powerful for me um, because it's so kind of banal, but it's also, you know, it's it's an utter lack of powerlessness and helplessness. Um, of course, I uh, took matters into my own hands and I stopped going to movies at that time, but obviously it's a metaphor. And so um, that sense of profound, profound kind of loss of control um, it really resonated with me. Same with the example of going into the tube and when it's uh, nice out and coming out when it's pouring rain. I've had this same experience. And often what I do as I'm like coming up the escalator and I see the rain, I try to stop, you know, I try to stay in the tube station because I just really, I don't want to accept the fact that it's raining outside. And, um, you know, I, I, but at the same time, you have to go, you know, you're usually on a schedule and you're trying to get somewhere. So I thought these, 
the beauty of that passage was just the utter simplicity. I think, you know, everyone can, can understand those feelings. And so, you know, I, I, I really kind of respect, admire this author for both kind of really delving into the complexities of mental illness, but also demystifying it. And, you know, I'm incredibly privileged that and lucky that I have not had to deal with this in this sort of way on a personal level. Um, and so to be able to kind of intersperse these deeply sad episodes with lightness and grace, I think, um, you know, well done, well done to the author. (laughs) Um, and yeah, I guess I would say, um, in the end, what I really kind of appreciated about this book was that it really kind of extended some grace to Martha. I mean, she was clearly suffering things that were beyond her control, even like genetically inscribed. Um, but she didn't let her off for those things, you know. Um, she was held accountable to extend care and love and grace to those around her who had some had and some had not done the same for her um but in the end there's kind of this this call to her that yes you're suffering yes it's painful and yes there's much you cannot control but there are also things you can control and that to not try to control those things is still an act of selfishness um and so I guess I appreciated that, you know, Meg Mason allowed us to kind of feel incredibly frustrated with Martha um, and to be angry with her uh, for being selfish and for not making an effort um, and kind of highlighting that sometimes the way she acted was because of her her uh, unnamed mental illness, but you know, sometimes it was also just selfish. And um, I think um, that was a deeply human way of rendering mental illness. So I was pretty floored uh, by what this book was able to do while also making me continually laugh out loud, which to be fair, I laugh out loud pretty easily. But these were not just little kind of exhale out of your nose chuckles. These were like vocalized, full on laughs. And, um, and I loved how deadpan it could be. And also the descriptions of the mundane in such funny ways. And this shined the most for me when she would describe a gif that she would send to her sister and uh you know i personally do consider myself somewhat of a gif connoisseur and so i usually know which gif she is describing and um my god they're deployed so well and the descriptions are (laughs) so perfect and so 
you know, I appreciated that attention to complete banal detail with a kind of mischievous sense of humor. Um, I'm so grateful that Caitlin recommended this book to me and anyone who's looking for many good laughs and a long, good cry, which let me say, I don't usually cry full on tears when I'm reading a novel, but this one really, really plucked at my heartstrings in a way that, uh, I'm not used to. Um, so it's, it's, it's emotionally extremely powerful, um, and captures all the kind of ambivalences of life, the joys, shall we say, <laughs> the sorrow and the bliss. Um, well played. Sorrow and bliss. Um, I had a great time just reading it. Easy, easy to read, kind of funny. Um, but I have to admit it created a lot of drama and I don't need any more drama in my life. So it was a little hard to get through a little bit. And I kept trying to figure out, okay, what's the, what's the meaning of this? And what am I going to learn from this? And then I was really surprised at the ending. And yes, there was a moral to the story and there was some learnings. So, um, all in all, it was really kind of an, a good first read of fiction in a long time. So um, I think the one thing that I really looked at was Martha and Patrick's relationship. And I can draw from that um, because I am with someone that I basically almost grew up with. Um, and it's a comfortable relationship and we get each other and we know each other's stories and it makes it really easy, but it's also, there's some downsides on those sorts of things. Um, you almost get too comfortable. So looking at Martha and Patrick's relationship, I can definitely see how it was comfortable and easy for a while, but yet it may not work out in the long run. So, and the last thing I wanted to just sort of chat about is the relationship of Martha and her dad. Um, seems like my dad, so I could relate to that. Where kind of slow and steady and just does his stuff and is there when you need him. I think I underappreciated that and how he knew how to deal with Martha because he was dealing with his wife and her family for so long. So um, it takes all kinds of people in this world. The other thing I wanted to say is that even though Sorrow and Bliss was fiction, I did end up learning quite a bit about it. And it is making me think about the people that are, or have just bring drama to my life that I don't need. And 
how do I set those boundaries and how do I call them on it saying, I don't need this or get your shit together. It's, um, it, it's really kind of interesting to think that how people bring things into your life that you really don't need or don't want and how do you just dissolve yourself or or don't accept that in your life all right listen up i want you to be on this podcast like really your voice on this podcast i want to hear what you think about the books we read the music we talk about all of it If you sign up for my newsletter, you can find out ahead of time what books, music, or other topics we'll be discussing on upcoming episodes. And then you can either submit audio messages that I can play on the podcast, or I might actually bring you on as a co-host for a full episode. Hearing from you makes this so much more fun for me. So please wiggle out of your little shell and take the first step by signing up for my newsletter at DontTalkToMePod.com. Oh, and you know that thing they all say about, please leave me a review? It would be really cool if you did that, so give it a thought. Thanks. Talk to you next week.